chapter 6 is really just a continuation of thought from chapter 5. If you recall from last week, we looked at um, the instruction from the Apostle Paul to young Timothy on how he is to interact, how he is to minister to different groups within the church. And if you recall the first couple of verses there, uh, Paul instructed Timothy on how to minister, how to interact with the older men and older women of the church. He was to treat them as fathers and mothers. And then in verse 2, he would give an instruction on how to interact with the younger men and younger women of the church. He's to treat them as brothers and sisters. And then in verses 3 through 16, the Apostle Paul dealt um, so much, so thoroughly with the widows of the church and how Timothy was to discern between who is a widow and a widow indeed, and how to honor the widows. All of that was discussed in those um, 13 verses. And then lastly, we ended off with verses 17 through 25 on how to honor the elders of the church. And so now as we move into 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul is now going to direct his instruction concerning another group within the church. And this is the group of those who are in the church and are slaves. To those who are in the church and are slaves. So let's read the first couple of verses here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 to see what Paul has to say about this. Chapter 6 verse 1 says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. So what I thought would be good for us to do, and hopefully it doesn't take the entirety of the class, but I thought what we'd do first is just address what is uh, seemingly to me the most obvious issue with these couple of verses here, and that's the subject of the text, and that is slaves or even the concept of slavery. I thought we could talk about that for just a moment. Um, I think that this issue and this topic is, is often brought up and is brought up as a challenge to believers, um, and it's usually a challenge against the Word of God in, in, in several different ways and several different aspects. Um, one challenge that unbelievers will bring to the Christian is uh, that, that always constant drumbeat of, well, the Bible condones slavery. And therefore, they say that the God of the Bible cannot be a good God and cannot be a righteous God, cannot be a holy God. And so they're really questioning um, the goodness of God and trying to invalidate the goodness of God by bringing up the fact that the Bible mentions slavery. So I thought in thinking about this, um, I think for the Christian, on the other hand, maybe the most obvious question might be this, is that why is it that Paul spends two verses here um, instructing slaves on how they are to treat um, their masters and how they are to be submissive to them? Why does Paul spend two verses doing that as opposed to maybe ten verses talking about how wrong slavery is and how it needs to be abolished. So you might ask yourself, I don't know if you've asked yourself that question, I don't know if you've been confronted with this issue before in some of the 
I guess some of the work that we as Christians need to do with this subject and, and be familiar with these things, but um, these, are, these are valid questions and things that need to be thought about and dealt with. And so as I thought through this, I thought that I should point out and recognize that a part of the answer to this question of why the Apostle Paul, in the two verses that he does deal with slavery, deals uh, in one sense right to the point of, look, when I'm bringing up the issue of slavery, this is what I have to say. Slaves be submissive to their masters. That's what comes to Paul's mind when he thinks about this subject. And uh, the answer is actually here in verse 1 of why Paul thinks like this. Why this is what Paul writes about as he thinks about the issue of slavery. The answer in verse 1 is that, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. This is why, above all things, the Apostle Paul, as he thinks about slavery, this is what he has to say. Slaves, be submissive to your masters. Uh, regard them with all honor, he says. And the reason is so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken, spoken against. So what Paul is essentially worried about, what he's saying, above all else, is that the glory of God and that the gospel have a superior significance and a superior importance than any of our individual circumstances in life. There's something more important than our particular individual circumstances in life, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ above all else. And so above, above all else, the gospel is to be protected, it's to be sanctified, and it's to uh, avoid distortion. Now, so what's the angle um, of, this, of this point? Well, I think that it has to do with the fact that Christianity is a religion of submission, it's not a religion of rebellion, and we're in danger of distorting the gospel if we're not willing to be a submissive people. A, a submissive people, you see, we're to be submissive to a sovereign God, and we're to be submissive to the authorities over us. Now, I thought of a similar parallel um, situation as far as the gospel is concerned, and as far as submission is concerned in the Bible. I thought about the, the similar call and the similar teaching that Paul gives to wives, to wives and how they are to be submissive to their husbands. And it's actually for a very similar reason. Paul says in Titus chapter two, that wives are to be subject to their husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. You see how uh, our, our lives and, and the living out of our, our Christian lives uh, and being submissive uh, can affect the gospel. And it affects the aspects of the gospel that have to do with submission. And ultimately, uh, the Christian, above all else, uh, a Christian, especially with a biblical understanding of God and his sovereignty, should be willing to submit themselves to whatever providence God, uh, the sovereign God, brings in their life. Another issue I want to bring up about the doctrine of, of I guess not a doctrine, but about the subject of slavery, is that you must understand that not all slavery spoken about in the Bible is exactly the same. Uh, that's something that definitely has to be taken into consideration when people throw out very general um, accusations against the Bible as they, as they say, well, the Bible speaks about slavery and condones slavery, therefore, you know, God is not good, or therefore God is evil and condones evil. Just some of the, the differences in the kinds of slavery that the Bible speaks about, and the first thing I think that we must do in addressing this issue is to distinguish 
the subjects of biblical slavery with that of uh, American or, or British slavery. Because biblical slavery is not based on race. It's not based on skin color as the slavery was um, in the Americas. I thought an interesting verse to point out and to note is Exodus chapter 21 verse 2. Where there the Hebrews, the, the Israelites are given instruction and this is how the instruction begins. If you buy a Hebrew slave... See, why is that interesting? Well, part of Old Covenant slavery was including other Hebrews, which therefore proves the fact that it's not based on race why this slavery was being um, uh, uh, practiced and these sorts of things. It wasn't based on a skin color. Hebrews were actually enslaving, in a sense, other Hebrews. You have another kind of slavery um, which some people have, la- have labeled, labeled as indentured servitude. If you've heard that language, indentured servitude, somebody could actually, in a sense, willfully um, sell themselves into slavery in exchange for uh, their own personal care and their family's care and their family's uh, welfare, welfare. They could sell themselves into indentured servitude and slavery to repay a debt that they owed. If they couldn't pay back a debt, they could sell themselves into slavery, and so there was an aspect of, of a willing enslavement that was actually very common um, under the Old Covenant. Um, that's, just, that's another reason that, that Wayne Grudem, it, as he was working with the ESV Translation Committee, that he didn't want to translate <clears throat> uh, the word doulos as slave. He preferred the translation bondservant, right, to try to nuance... And, and distinguish between what most people, when they hear the word slave, they think American slavery, slavery based on race. But Grudem is, is trying to distinguish and separate um, the biblical concepts of slavery from that by, by translating the word bondservant. Um, another aspect of slavery in the Bible, you see it in, for instance, Deuteronomy chapter 20. There's slavery that's brought um, against warring nations um, when they're defeated. As Israel went out and defeated their enemies, um, and so just so you know, if, as you think about this subject, there was the differentiation that when the Israelites were fighting those in the promised land, they were to wipe those people out completely. When Israel was warring with other nations and their other enemies who fought against them outside of the promised land, they were to offer um, and sense a, a, a peace treaty to those people to where if they didn't want to fight Israel, they could be taken in as slaves and, and their lives would be spared in that sense. And so that was definitely one aspect of, of biblical slavery was instead of slaughtering these people, they could actually be taken in as slaves. And what would be the, what would be the positive aspect of that? Well, for one, you're not dead. Secondly, you're now brought into the, the people of God and you're now under actually the blessings of being under the old covenant and having um, the covenant of Yahweh and the theocracy of Yahweh over you, which had many benefits to it. It had many protections under the old covenant for um, slaves and as well as all of the, uh, the Sabbath rests were given to and commanded to be given to the slaves as well. If you remember from the Ten Commandments, um, as the Sabbath is commanded under the old covenant, that even the servants, even the slaves of the Israelites were to be given these rests. So that's one benefit of, of this uh, enslavement that was brought about because of wars. 
Now, another thing we need to be ready to point out in dealing with this subject is that Paul does not condone slavery um, in the sense that most people are thinking about when they throw this accu- accusation out. Where does the Apostle Paul uh, make it very clear that the, en- the enslavement that most people are accusing the Bible of, this unjust slavery, uh, that the Bible is condoning this sort of thing? Does anybody know where the Apostle Paul um, condemns that kind of enslaving of people? He's talking about it in Colossians and Ephesians for masters to treat the slaves very fairly. Okay, that's one aspect of it. Yeah, there's a lot of parallel passages dealing with the subject of slavery, and there, yes, masters are commanded to treat the slaves um, well. In a similar way, actually, that husbands are supposed to treat their wives and parents are supposed to treat children. Right, that's right. But where's a condemnation, in a sense, of slavery by Paul? Well, he says in 1 Corinthians yeah. 7.21 that if you can be free, rather do that. True. Yep. Yep. So therefore, he's not saying that, you know, he, he underst- he's recognizing the fact that you would not want to be a slave in one sense, right? And it's okay to free yourself if that's possible. But where does Paul condemn slavery? This is not good for me because we've talked about it in this class, so I was hoping somebody would have it. Where in 1 Timothy... <laughs> yes, sir. Huh? Kidnappers. Kidnappers. That's right. I mean, we, we mentioned it, but if you look back at 1 Timothy chapter 1, as Paul was discussing the law and the work of the law, and as he's discussing all of these ways in which the law condemns the ungodly and is, there, and is written and is there for sinners, it's in verse 10 where we talked about how the NASB translate this word versus the ESV. In verse 10, he says that the law is for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers. And and if you were here, if you remember, we talked about how that word, actually, the word kidnappers is, is directly related to kidnapping for the purpose of enslavement. And that's why the ESV translates that word enslavers. And so that word is included right in with what you could consider a vice list of all of these um, uh, gross sins against God and against fellow man. And one of those things is enslaving of people, it's stealing people for the purpose of enslavement. So there the Apostle Paul, I would say, um, pretty straightforwardly condemns the type of enslavement that most people are thinking about when they try to make that accusation against the biblical slavery um, the other, another nice passage to know about, and it's worth turning to, turn to Exodus chapter 21, where Exodus chapter 21, the first, you knew that verse? Wow, Patrick, this is a, I did not know this verse, I did not know this verse, but Exodus chapter 21, verse 16 is, is kind of an extension or a parallel passage to what Paul is condemning in 1 Timothy But here it says, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. So to just just to steal someone for the purpose of either putting them to work for yourself or to sell to somebody somebody else is actually condemned with the death penalty um, under the old covenant. So that's the sort of enslavement I think most people are thinking about. They're thinking about that type of American slavery where people were stolen in order to put to work. Um, so 
the argument and the debate, usually on a street level, it needs to be nuanced. It needs to be qualified. And, you know, the problem starts off with just a blanket accusation, accusation of just the Bible condoning slavery, therefore, right? Um, there was actually um, necessary purposes for it uh, most of the time. Uh, did anybody else have any other questions maybe that, that you wondered about or thought about? I know some of you guys, is it a UNT? Who, who's Slave Dave? <laughs> who's Slave Dave? Is that a UNT? Yeah. Right? So there's somebody who's already quite frequently making that accusation against you guys. So <laughs> that's, I've heard that's what he's called. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, hopefully, I mean, that's, it's not just with that guy. I mean, I see it quite often, you know, on the internet and that sort of thing. Even guys at my work, you know, um, that's a very common accusation, so it would, it would be worth it to, to dive into the Word of God on that subject and just be ready to give a defense, at least on that subject, I think would be helpful. And I'm sure the Apostle Paul, um, if he had wanted to, could have written a very lengthy treatise on all of the injustices that, that were present in Roman first century slavery. He could have very easily done that, um, but that's not what he chose to do when he thought about slavery. What he chose to do, and I think in this text what needs to be noticed above all, is that the Apostle Paul, without distinguishing whatever type of form of slavery you happen to be under, for whatever reason you're in that slavery, um, he says that you're to regard your own master worthy of all honor. That's the, that's the teaching of this text, is that as a slave, you are to regard your masters as worthy of of all honor, no matter what the situation, the Christian is, in fact, to honor the authority over them. Paul's not the only one who says something like this. Um, as Ryan noted, there's parallel passages. I have uh, Peter's parallel teaching to this subject. First Peter, if you want to turn there. Um, First Peter chapter 2, in verse 18. Peter himself, um, I'm in Second Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Here it says in our NASB, servants, but it's the exact same word in the Greeks, doulos, slaves, douloi. Slaves, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Right? Same, same straightforward teaching. But I have this verse right here in my work phone as my screensaver because of what the Apostle Paul goes on to say. I mean, what Peter goes on to say, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Wow. See, so there's really no time, there's really no place, there's really no situation in which the Christian has the excuse to not be submissive to those in authority over us. There's at no point, even if our bosses, in a sense, if you want to make that parallel, which is, I think is a very valid parallel between this situation uh, amongst these slaves and us as um, employees that no matter what the case we're to be submissive to our bosses and to those over us even if they're unreasonable and what's interesting again if you if you're still in first peter chapter 2 look at verse 15 because this the reason is the same why we're to do this in verse 15 it says for such is the will of god that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. You see how we talked about earlier how all of this submission that we're to, um, to do is to protect the gospel and to protect the glory of God and, and to protect um, 
the outsider's view of Christianity. That's why we're to do these things. Peter has the same same view of these things. So our will, our willful submission um, is in a sense to remove all excuses from unbelievers for them to think that Christianity is something other than it is. You see, so in that sense, the glory of the gospel is at stake in how we live out our lives as uh, employees or as slaves and those under authority. And I heard this quote, and I thought that oh, I don't usually put in a lot of quotes, but here's a quote from church history that I thought was, it just really stuck out to me. It's funny that I was listening to a debate, uh, David Wood versus Shabir Ali, on is the Bible a book of peace. I, just, I was listening to this, and it's funny that Kennedy, my daughter, not even knowing that this was in my notes, was out in my, in my palace that I study in. She heard this exact same quote and brought it up this morning, which I thought was really, really strange that she heard this, and she noted it too. But this is a quote from Clement of Rome, which may be the only other first century document that we have, first century Christian document, um, is very early in church history. And he writes a letter to the Corinthians. So we maybe we consider, consider this fourth Corinthians. But this is what he says in there about the church at, at his time, about Christians that he knew of. He says, we know many among ourselves who have given, have given themselves up to bonds in order that they might ransom others. Many too have surrendered themselves to slavery, that with the price that they receive for themselves, they might pro- provide food for others. Isn't that interesting that people within the first century were selling themselves into slavery, taking that money that you got for that, and helping people, giving food to others in need? Um, that was very, very convicting. Um, that even stuck out to my six-year-old daughter. She heard that and, wow, that's, that's an amazing thing to do. Um, and, and so as I, as I heard that quote being brought up, I just thought, we think much too highly of ourselves. We think much too highly of ourselves in the sense that we think that it is impossible that God would in any sense or in any way desire that one of us have to fulfill such a lowly role and such a difficult role and calling in life as to be a slave. But um, certainly God was glorified by those first century Christians in doing such a such a humble thing um so so that let, let's just call it let's just call that that let's move on um because now the apostle paul is going to return uh to address another group in our text another group in our text a group that he's already addressed several times throughout the book he's really this group seems to be the reason the apostle paul wrote this um, book in the first place and this group is the false teachers that exist within <coughs> ephesus so going on from the, I guess, the end of verse two, which where the subject kind of changes, Paul says to Timothy, teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Understands nothing. So... All of this is being said, of course, to distinguish between um, the false teacher's doctrine and what the Apostle Paul here calls um, the doctrine of of sound words and the doctrine conforming to godliness. And so here, I just wanted to note just these two components, these two aspects of what is to be considered true doctrine. There's two aspects here in these verses, and 
One aspect of true doctrine is that it must be the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. They must be sound words according to the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the gospel, according to um, what, the, what the Son of God uh, can, conveyed to his apostles and what's, of course, taught in Scripture. And the other aspect is that the doctrine must be conforming to godliness. It must be conforming to godliness. So Paul, just as he is prone to do, is just always laying forth this inextricable link between doctrine and godliness, theology and fruit, right? Faith and works, all of those sorts of connections are there. It's just that biblical pattern we see in Scripture where it lays forth the the indicatives for us. It lays forth what God has done for us in Christ and and it always uh, moves into the imperative, therefore, what we should do um, in return for our Savior, what, what the imperatives are and commands for us. Now, um, there are unfortunately, obviously, as we know, in Timothy's church, uh, these men here who are not concerned with either of these aspects of true doctrine. And the Apostle Paul is going to um, first list the bad fruit that comes from these men. He lists the bad fruit, and then he goes on to list the root behind this fruit. But let's look at the, the fruit of these, of these men's lives first. It says, but these men, uh, but this man has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved, uh, deprived of the truth. So the bad fruit of these false teachers in Timothy's church is that Paul describes it as a morbid interest in questions and disputes. Questions and disputes. Now, um, I thought I would just qualify this by saying that, and we're all fully familiar with the, the reality that there are many questions, there are many disputes to be had concerning the Word of God. Uh, there's a right place for all of these things, but obviously there's a line to be crossed. You see, there's obviously a line to be crossed and, and a motivation behind crossing that line that leads one into a morbid interest in these questions and in these, in these debates. And so the line certainly is the point where the questioning uh, and the debating doesn't lead to the edification of the church, but actually leads to division and leads to all these squabbles and all these... Uh, constant friction, as the Apostle Paul um, calls it. Now, everyone I listen to, I have a long drive to work. I listen to, I get to listen to a lot of people on whatever subject I'm teaching on. But what's interesting is that every person that I listen to made the exact same application with this text right here, and their application was that those who are reformed in their soteriology always seem to be the ones who are crossing this line, right? With just the endless debates and endless questionings, right? And, and I can't argue with that. If I told you all the guys who, who said that, you, would, you wouldn't want to argue either. But I think we're all familiar with just the reality that there's obviously this pride that comes with having more knowledge, with having more revelation, that if we're not careful, we can become more divisive than is necessary, um, as I said, there, there is a good and right place for debate. There's a good and right place for questioning. But obviously, um, we have to keep our, our pride and our zeal 
it can't be unbridled zeal, right? We have to be disciplined in all of these, all of these questions that uh, come up with the word of God, especially amongst um, the brethren, because that, that was Christ's prayer for the church. It was for, the, for unity, and unity is gained by learning how to minister and how to work with the brethren, even if there's disagreements and, and different understandings. That's where unity is going to be found. So we all have to work towards this for the glory of Christ's church. Now, what's the root beneath these men's uh, divisiveness? What's the root beneath the, all this bad fruit of these men who were rising up in Ephesus and teaching in Timothy's church and, and trying to gain a following with all of their questioning. Paul says here, uh, these men are supposing that godliness is a means of gain. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They're, in a sense, using Christianity um, as a means to gain, as 1 Timothy 1.17 said, to, in a sense, gain a position, gain authority over people, and even to gain financially. And obviously, both of these are ungodly motives for desiring to be teachers in the church. Um, we see, of course, we see this throughout, unfortunately, um, Christianity today. Many people who apparently seem to just want to be heard, they just want to be seen, they just want to be somebody, they want money. Obviously, unashamedly, sometimes they let you know that that's what they're seeking. And um, some things have never changed. In that sense, some things have never changed. Um, but it's with that in mind that the Apostle Paul, it, it seems to be a very fluid train of thought um, in First Timothy as far as how Paul's mind goes from one uh, subject to the next. But look how in speaking about how these ungodly teachers are seeking gain, how the Spirit leads Paul to discuss um, the issue of gain and the issue of material possessions for us. Notice verse 6. It says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take out anything either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. If you have food and covering, with these you should be content. Um, how far away are we, brothers and sisters, from being content with enough food and coverings over our backs. Are we content with just those things? Um, I'll answer for us, no, I'm not. And no, we're not. Um, we're not content as we should be. Now, why aren't we? Well, the text addresses why we aren't. It's a lack of an eternal perspective. Did you see that in verse 7? Paul said that we take nothing out of this world. You will take nothing out of this world. These things are just temporary. Um, things in this life, material possessions, are just as temporary as our earthly lives are. These things are but a vapor. And it's, and it's actually full of us, foolish of us to be holding these things so dear that are but temporary and are going to pass away and are not going to um, last for eternity. Um, you know, as, as we get saved, um, as all of us get saved... The idol factory that is our heart certainly slows down, but it keeps on producing. It keeps on producing idols. And so we need to be uh, not at the end of the uh, assembly line of the idol factory. We need to be as close as we can to the beginning 
to shut down that production of idolatry that comes up in our lives. And, you know, it's different for all of us. Our hearts produce different idols, but we all have the same battle of, of not being sucked in by the things of this world, these things that are but temporary. Because look at the great dangers of not being able to, to stay on top of this. Verse 9 says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many griefs. Interesting, isn't it, how what the result is of somebody seeking after happiness, right? What actually ends up happening is not finding happiness. That's what's so ironic about all this, of, of trying to find this comfort in being rich, is that it actually brings the opposite. Not comfort, but all sorts of evil, it says, and, and all sorts of problems, harmful desires, plunges men into ruin and destruction, pierces you through with many griefs. That's not what people are seeking when they seek after wealth, these things, but that um, is what the Word of God says is going to come. And so we see that this this prize that's held out uh, by the enemy is just another one of his lies. This, this hope that money and riches is going to be the answer, that that's going to bring you contentment and satisfaction. It's not. It's just another one of his lies. It's just like all his other lies, uh, the lies of, of immorality, the lies of drugs and sex and alcohol and all of these things. They're all lies. They all seem like they're going to bring you happiness, but in the end, they bring destruction. And it's, and it's a good lie. I've been deceived by these things, and they make you think you're happy, but in the end, you're not. In the end, you're not. And, and at the end of the line, everybody realizes that they've been duped. So why are we not to fix our hope on riches, and why is that evil? Um, because riches aren't, in and of themselves um, obviously aren't evil. Look at the language that he uses in verse 17. He says, like, these are things that God richly supplies us um, with all these things to enjoy. So God and riches and money is, is things that can be enjoyed. They're not evil in and of themselves. Um, but to fix your hope on these things is evil and is wrong. To fix your hope in these things now, why is that? That's because the text says that riches are uncertain. The uncertainty of riches. But God, on the other hand, to fix your hope on God, that's the language he's already used. It's almost like a parallel between 1 Timothy 4.10. For this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God. Now we're saying, don't fix your hope on riches. Um, that same word is being used. So it's just that, that desire in your heart to... Find your hope, find your peace, find your comfort, find your future and your rest in riches. That's idolatry. We're to find our hope in, in that which is certain, which is the living God. That's the only place you're to find your hope. Now, the thing about this text, the thing about this text about in, in how... Paul talks about the rich and directs these teachings to the rich. I know most of us can probably just read right over this thinking, man, I hope the rich people pay attention to this text. But the thing is, is that comparatively to the 
majority of the world, brothers and sisters, everyone in this room is the rich. Everyone in here, I think, in one sense, is the rich because whether you realize it or not, most of the world lives in poverty, what we would consider poverty. I actually did a little Google search, um, which who knows how accurate my Google search is. But from there I saw that uh, almost half the world, over 3 billion people, I think there's 7 billion something on the planet, over 3 billion people in the world live on less than $2.50 a day. $2.50 a day. And 80% of humanity lives their lives every day on less than $10 a day. 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. I think most of us probably make more than that an hour. And most 80% of the world lives on 10, less than $10 a day. That's, that's a staggering, that's a humbling, convicting reality as I think about it, all of us sitting in this room. So I think this text applies directly to us as it's speaking to the rich and those who have much and those who have plenty and have too much. Um, so what's the application then if this does apply to us? What does Paul tell us to do with this abundance that we have? Because as verse 18 goes on, um, look down at verse 18. Paul is speaking to us here. Paul says to the rich, he tells Timothy to instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is, is life indeed. That which is in life indeed. So um, really we just see again the necessity of having an eternal perspective. And what is life indeed? Right? Remember how we use that language of, uh, of a widow indeed? Just meaning who is truly a widow? Well, what's truly life? Truly life is storing up for eternal life. That's truly life. Um, to live your life now and for the here and now is not life, but that's, that's going to pass away in the twinkling of an eye. That's not life eternal. So the reality is your heart is where your money is. Everybody knows that verse. Um, so the question is, is your heart seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Is that where your heart is? Or is your heart here on the passing things of this, of this life? And I've used this example before, this application before, but it, it, it's the reality that I think is helpful, is that the objective scorecard, or one objective scorecard of where your heart is, um, will be issued by us, by Heritage Grace, at the end of the new year. And what will that be? That will be your giving statement for the year. Where I say that is a very objective, something every year you can look at and before the Lord you can say, am I growing in my, in, in my willingness to store up for myself a foundation for eternal life? Right? That's, that's a very objective thing that you can do with your family. Um, men, um, sit down with your wives and look at that statement that comes out. And look at last year's statement if you still have it. And make sure that you are progressing in this area and you're not going the wrong direction as far as where your heart is and where your um, money is. Because that's, I believe, a very objective place to look. Um, let's just end because that's First Timothy um, in a nutshell. And I, I knew that I would probably run out of time.
Even though y'all did allow me to do most of the talking today, in a sense I appreciate that. I do like y'all's questions, but this is how I, th- I thought I would end when we, if we ran out of time. I just want to read for us verses 11 through 16. It's all very straightforward. It's all very clear, but um, let's just end the way the Apostle Paul leaves Timothy here with this letter. I'm just going to read for us beginning in verse 11. It says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. 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 Well, let's pray and we'll go to service. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord. Um, We thank you for your sovereignty over us, Lord. We pray that you would... Give us the grace to live our lives in such a way that we glorify you under your providence and under your sovereignty, Lord. Help us, give us faith to trust you in whatever circumstances that you bring in our lives. Lord, help us to fight the good fight until the end, until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us not to fall short of the prize. Lord, help us to keep our eye on the prize, to fix our hope on eternity with you. Lord, let this earth not distract us, Lord, as, as the troubles increase, Lord. I pray that it would only remind us that there is no hope for us in this world, that there's nothing here. All of these things are uncertain, and that we need to look to him who is certain, and that's to you, Lord. So give us this grace, Lord. Bless, bless our worship today, Lord, as we go to sing to you, and, and as we're reminded of the incarnation, Lord, we thank you for the the greatest miracle of all, the fact that you came into this world in your son. You, you visited us, Lord, and we were able to see and to hear and to touch. And all of this became more real than we could possibly imagine, Lord. So give us faith, Lord, to worship you today. May you be pleased with our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, my wife got him. Oh. My wife stole him from him. She stole him. <laughs> yeah.